You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, my name is Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove ancient medical wisdom with modern science. In today's podcast, I have a special guest all about the psychology of eating. Mark David is the founder of the Institute for the Psychology of Eating and the leading visionary teacher, consultant, in nutritional psychology, and a good friend and a longtime associate. We've worked together for quite a few times over the years, and uh, you're going to love this podcast. He is the author of best-selling books, The uh, Nourishing Wisdom and The Slow Down Diet, right? Sounds pretty Ayurvedic, right? So you're going to love this. Mark has held senior consulting positions at the Canyon Ranch Resorts, Cropalo, Johnson & Johnson, and Disney. He's appeared in media outlets like CNN, CBC, New York Times, McCall's, Glamour, Elle, Vietnam Reader, Yoga Journal, WebMD, and others. He's presented at Harvard, the Institute of Functional Medicine, the National Institute of the Clinical Application of Behavioral Medicine, and many others. Mark's teaching organization, the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, is the world's only online school dedicated to progressive, positive, holistic understanding of eating, psychology, and nutrition. Revolutionary in its approach, the Institute teaches how to work with the most common and compelling eating challenges of our time. You can learn more at psychologyofeating.com. And Mark, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I look so forward to talking about this. You know, in Ayurvedic medicine, we always know, right? We always talk about how how you eat is the most important thing. One of my favorite kind of topics is there's we eat, there's how you eat, when you eat, and what you eat. And I always ask people when I lecture, you know, what's the most important thing? Is it how you eat, when you eat, or what you eat? If you're like, no, it's what you eat. And, and we argue over that a lot, right? The best-selling books are doing that. And then we say, no, it's when you eat. Of course, that's an Ayurvedic thing, circadian medicine, which I know you're going to get into. And then there's how you eat. What's the most important? And from the Ayurvedic perspective, it is clearly how you eat. So I'd love to maybe start there and kind of you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what you know about why is how you eat so critically important. Well, first of all, John, thank you for the great introduction. And, you know, this is such a great topic because we are living in a time when exactly we're so focused on the what. We're so focused on good nutrition and, and we love good nutrition. Um, we're all sold. It's proven. It's great. It's wonderful. And this is exactly it. And it's amazing to me how, as you're saying, you know, Ayurveda for goodness knows thousands of years has been pointing this out to us. And here we are with modern nutritional science, and we're usually focused on the what. You know, good nutrition is important. You know, I think one of the great ways that science is right in our face teaching us about how we eat is via stress and relaxation response. Basic textbook medical physiology. When you and I are in the stress response, sympathetic nervous system dominance, you know, it's a beautiful event because it's designed so that you and I are being chased by the lion. Okay, let's survive. Heart rate up, blood pressure up, blood shunted away from our midsection to arms and legs for quick fighting or fleeing. Digestion is going to shut down in a full-blown stress response. So the whole point is 
Stress is a graded response, mild stress, moderate stress, extreme stress. That's a physiologic state. We have stress hormones. We have so many parameters are changing in the body. So when we're eating under stress, we are in some degree of digestive shutdown. We're talking about decreased enzymatic output in the gut. We're talking about decreased motility in the gut. We're talking about, for a lot of people, day in, day out stress equals elevated cortisol, elevated insulin, which actually leads to weight gain. So the whole point is, here we are, I could be eating the healthiest food in the universe, but if I'm not in the optimum state of digestion assimilation, which happens to be the relaxation response, we're not getting the full value from the meal. You know, it's interesting because, you know, in, in India, they also say that, you know, how you eat your food allows you to, there's an old saying that says, if you eat standing up, death looks over your shoulder. And, mm -hmm. and the idea, I don't know if they knew about parasympathetic, sympathetic response to eating, but clearly we know that there's rest and digest nervous system, which is your parasympathetic nervous system, activates when you sit down and chill and relax. But in addition, I wonder if you could go down a little further, because <clears throat> they say that when you actually, that the emotions that you have when you eat the food mm -hmm. are impregnating those emotions into the food itself from our microbes. We know that when we're under stress, our microbes shift, they adapt, they compensate for that stress, they transfer our mind, our thoughts, our behavior. But when you actually eat the food, it was understood in Ayurveda that when you eat in an angry way, you're in impregnating your food, the, my, the microbes, which should be on your whole food if it wasn't a sterile processed food, you're impregnating that emotion on them. So when you eat them, you're actually eating these negative emotions. Mm -hmm. Sounds crazy, right? And out there in Ooga Booga, but there's actually good science to show that our microbes feel everything epigenetically, biochemically, but absolutely they hold on to those emotions and they change our emotions. So can you talk to me a little bit about that understanding, if that's something that you guys get into? Sure, absolutely. You know, we, first of all, we're emotional beings. Yeah. You know, yes, we're physiologic beings. And, and just as we have a physiologic metabolism, you know, I, we have an emotional metabolism. How do you and I metabolize anger? Anger comes up for human beings. How do we metabolize depression? How do we metabolize our discomfort, our stress, our excitement, our happiness? You know, once again, we can tie it into the physiologic event of the stress response because there are certain emotions that for you and I, guess what? They're more stressful. We don't like pain. We don't like anger. If you're in an anger response, definitionally, you're in a stress response. As soon as the brain is sensing stress, we're in some degree of digestive shutdown. To your point, we are creating the kind of environment that would essentially kill off our gut microbiome. And if not kill it off, limit it, deny it, harm it. So our yeah. emotions, and, and here's the thing too, not only is it the emotions, but it's really as well, I think, the beliefs that we have, our core beliefs. So if I'm walking around thinking, you know, I'm too fat, I'm not good enough, nobody's going to love me. I don't make enough money. I'm, I'm not enough in this world as who I am. That little app that's constantly playing in the mind, how can that not impact our physiology? How can that not be 
a mild, consistent stressor that is impacting us. So, you know, there's, there's, there's places where it becomes proven in your own body. You know, if it sounds woo-woo to people, change the way you eat, sit down to a meal, take 10 long, slow, deep breaths, get present, get there. You know, there's all kinds of interesting studies around, you know, prayer and how it impacts healing, how it impacts the body. On one level, prayer is like a relaxation response. If you're praying, I guarantee you, you're not stressed out. Watch people pray. Something happens. And, and the thing is, most people don't realize, to me, this should be, you know, taught in, in, in junior high school, that, that all healing and regeneration of body tissue happens in the physiologic relaxation response, in parasympathetic nervous system dominance. So, you know, you come home from work, you're not feeling good. You don't say to your wife, honey, I'm going to go run around like a madman so I can feel better. It's not, honey, I'm going to lie down on the couch. We instinctively know the relaxation response catalyzes healing. So there's a place where, you know, I watch people follow amazing diets, like really good. They're eating the right foods. But if they're not coming from the right place, <laughs> if the attitude is, oh, my God, if I don't eat this, I'm going to die. If I don't eat this, it's going to look really bad. I'm going to get diseased. That, that's, that's what's in the system. And to your point, we're infusing our food with that and we're infusing our own physiology with that. Yeah, that's a huge piece is that, that kind of infusion of emotion onto the food and not only the food out here, but to the microbes inside of you as well are getting that stressed out message. I read a, a study once that I thought was really funny. It was a study about grace and ritual before you eat the food. And as they said that if you have a ritual before you eat the food, it activates parasympathetic activity, it increases digestive strength, and things get better. And it, but they said it didn't really matter. I mean, obviously, I think grace is sort of that activate parasympathetic, get calm, get the digestive system, system turned on. But they also did a study said that any ritual that you do, I mean, you could like slap your face. As long as you slap your face like that every time you eat, the brain will start getting the message that this means food is coming and you'll, you'll kind of prep the body. And, and so much of what we do in our culture is we grab our food, get in front of the TV, watch CNN or, or whatever you watch or, or some scary movie and your brain's like freaking out watching the movie. And, and of course, your stomach is also like engaged in the movie as well. And all of a sudden, all this food comes clobbering down on them. So there's no preparation. There's no mind-body connection. So what do you suggest for folks to do to sort of, you know, slap their face or do some kind of ritual or prayer or meditate? Or what's your, you know, top get the digestive system ready so when you do eat the food, you can actually digest it? You know, John, it's such a great question. I'm always interested in what people tend to do or have done that works for them. You know, mm -hmm. I can give them my ritual. I notice for many people, not all, just setting the space. If you're at home, do you set your table? Do you use your favorite dish? What kind of music are you playing? Um, are you playing music? Can you play relaxing music? To your point, is the TV blaring in the background? Is it CNN talking about the latest terrorist attack? That's going to impact your body. So, so much of it is the ritual of setting the stage for the meal. Light a candle. By the time we start to do that, the mind is intervening. Oh, let me do this. Let me do that. We're getting present. 
you know, presence relaxes us. You can, you can focus on a blank spot on the wall and look at the details and you'll relax. You can, you can focus on the sound of the wind outside. As soon as we attend to one of the senses and put our awareness there, the body just wants to relax. So we attend to the rituals that already work. And, you know, if you're out and you're at a restaurant, you're at work, you're in a meeting, and there it is, you're stressed. To me, the best thing to do, five to 10 long, slow, deep breaths. Because the breath is regulating all of who we are. You know, and, and I'm not telling you, you don't know anything you don't already know. Um, to remind your listeners, like every, every emotional state has a corresponding brainwave pattern and breath pattern. You know, I'm driving my car, somebody almost hits me. <gasps> You know, the breathing pattern of intense stress, it's shallow, it's arrhythmic, it's infrequent. I realize the guy doesn't hit me. <sighs> breathing pattern of relaxation, it's, it's regular, it's rhythmic, it's deeper. So as soon as we adopt the breathing pattern of relaxation, even if we're stretched, you do that long enough, five to ten times, the brain will send signals into the body. Oh my goodness, I thought I was a stress maniac. I must be relaxed. You will send nervous system signals via the vagus nerve, via so many different pathways to tell your digestive system to relax. So deep breathing, one of the best. So what you're saying then is like the ritual is a really good idea. Setting a table, lighting a candle, and probably really good from that other study to do, if you can, the same kind of thing over and again because those are sort of that Pavlog dog cue, right? So we just yes. keep getting that, that repetitive message. Oh, this means we're going to eat. This means we should relax and turn on digestion. But the breathing thing, I think, is really fascinating that you bring that up. You know, I, my first book was all about nasal breathing and exercise and all that. And I was, you know, but I never put it together as part of a pre-digestive kind of turn on the parasympathetic digestive system. So <clears throat> tell me, I'd love to know more about how you use breathing in the psychology of eating. There's so much to the breath. I, I, you know, John, I think it's probably still one of the most underrated tools out there. That's yeah. a mind body health transformational tool. And part of it is, you know, breathing is controlled by the autonomic nervous system. Notice the similarities between autonomic and automatic. So breathing for you and I and every other human being is automatic. If you and I had to remind ourselves to breathe, we would be dead. Um, you'd forget. I would forget. So, you know, evolution is very nice to us. It just breathes us for us. But what I've noticed is that, you know, and, and digestion also is controlled by the autonomic nervous system. It's automatic. Once you swallow that food, you don't have to worry about it. You could do whatever you want to do. Technically speaking, your digestive system, it, it has you. It's going to handle it. Now... Here's the thing though, we're human. And one of the things humans do is we improve our world. You know, we create clothes, we create cars, we create technology, we like our comforts. And we look, do our best to elevate ourselves and improve ourselves. Um, you know, one thing that I learned from the science of yoga is, oh my goodness, there's all these practices a human could do for self-improvement Two places we can improve is to add conscious participation in the digestive process and conscious participation in the breathing process. 
So it's sort of a, it's a, it's a personal experiment to say to oneself, you know, I'm going to pay more attention to my breathing because if I do, I can better harness my mind. I can better manage, manage my stress. I can better regulate my emotions and I can better digest my meal just by, and it's free. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to bottle that stuff and sell it. You can't bottle a breathing pill as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, we can write some books and make some programs about it. But at the end of the day, when I help people remember or, or help them, you know, become an explorer with their own body, notice what happens when you sit down to a meal and you just deep breathe before the meal. Watch what happens. For a lot of people, it's the first time that they've consciously relaxed their body. So it's conscious control. It's conscious management of the body. No different than going for a run. I'm going to consciously move my body. Mm. Um, so breathing is an amazing tool. And the thing is, anyone can do it. You don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to be in great shape to do it. I got to tell you a quick story. The, the first time I learned about the power of breathing relative to metabolism, um, I had a weight loss client, God, it must have been 35 years ago, and she wanted to lose 75 pounds, did everything in the universe, calorie restricting, food restricting, doesn't work, and she can't exercise, doesn't like exercise, and I had just started studying yoga. So for whatever reason, I come up with this notion I want her to do breathing practices, simple breathing, you know, three times a day, and just notice what happens. Two weeks later, she had lost about eight or nine pounds, hadn't changed her diet. All she did was breathe. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And then I started doing a little reading. Guess what? Oxygen. <laughs> that, it's, it's one of the great benefits of exercise is you and I are taking in more oxygen. And vitamin O, that is your number one metabolic nutrient. You know, you ain't burning fat. You're not burning calories without oxygen. So on one level, that oxygen by itself, I'm taking in more oxygen. You know, I think that's why a lot of people smoke. <laughs> They're actually breathing. You know? <laughs> so I don't know if I answered your question. I think I might have deviated there. No, no, I think that's great. I think that makes me think, you know, using breathing, you know, when you think about how much stress people have around eating, right? I mean, eating, we, how many of us are eating emotionally? I mean, all of us do, right? I mean, we all always, not always, but, you know, we always have that, that cue. The brain pulls down the menu when you're feeling a little stressed out. How do I get out of this hole? Well, it's going to be food on that menu. It might be a nap, it might be meditate, but there's going to be like chocolate and coffee and chips, or whatever is your thing on that menu too. And we usually go there first. So using breathing as a technique to, to kind of, um, you know, to disarm that fight or flight response to get underneath the emotion and actually feed yourself, I think is incredibly valuable. And I would imagine that you've done a whole lot of research on that with regard to like binge eating and overeating and things like that. So let's, let's dive into that. Let's dive into emotional eating. Let's dive into what happens when people overeat or eat emotionally. How do we stop that? Okay, let's, let's, um, let's, let's grasp overeating first because that's, that, that's such a wonderful concept. And I wanna say that 
you know, similar to, I don't know, having a headache. A human being can come into your office and say, Dr. John, I got a headache. You know, there could probably be 500 reasons that why that person has a headache. It could be food related, chemical related, stress related, it could be a tumor, it could be lack of water. It could, it could be so many medical reasons going on for why a human being might have a headache. So I do wanna say that there's a lot of reasons why we might overeat. Um, I wanna pay attention to the kind of overeating that's driven by emotions, that's driven by stress. Now, you and I learned at a very young age, every human being, I will assert, has learned from a very young age, you're a crying, screaming little infant, okay? And you're going crazy. And all of a sudden, mama takes you, she gives you the bottle, she gives you the brush, she holds you, and in an instant, you're relaxed. In an instant, you're calmed down. So we have in our genetic memory, we have in our cellular memory, our emotional memory, feel bad, get some food, feel better, okay? So that little wiring is in the brain. And, and you know something, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's okay, because it's true. You, you are driven to feel good by food because if you didn't feel good when you eat food, you wouldn't do it and you would die. So we are driven to have an appetite. Hunger drives us, appetite drives us, and it's pleasurable. Because once again, if it wasn't pleasurable, if eating wasn't pleasurable and procreation wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. So the species would end. Okay, so, so there's a certain stress reduction that happens when we overeat. So I'm stressed. I could be stressed for 100,000 reasons. My relationship, my kids, my, my aging parents, my bank account, whatever it is, and I'm telling myself, whatever it is going on in my world, I'm legitimately stressed. And because I'm human, I remember, feel bad, eat food, feel better. So as soon as you get enough food in the system, okay, the system starts to overload with food, and all of a sudden your digestive system goes, wait a second, I was just in partial or extreme shutdown. You're loading a lot of food into here. I have to digest this, what do I gotta do? I have to relax. So once you and I have enough food, the body actually relaxes. So we created a circuit that, you know, in one way does the trick because we wanted to relax. Yeah. But long term, it doesn't get us where we want to go. We don't feel good about ourselves. We literally, ah, I got all this food sitting in my belly. That doesn't feel good. I overate. That doesn't feel good. I'm gaining weight. That doesn't feel good. So part of it is we have to learn how to slow down. Literally, because when you and I are in a stress response, most humans, we want to get rid of that stress response right away. If I'm in discomfort, take it away. Give me the pill. Give me the drug. Give me the medicine. Give me the alcohol. Give me the cigarette. Like take the pain, take the pain right away. And John, I think part of it is helping each other mature around our need for instant gratification. So yeah, food is instant gratification, but guess what? There needs to be a pause when it comes to instant gratification. Instant gratification is good for a child, it's good for an infant, it is not so good for an adult. It doesn't work for us. So the pause is, oh, deep breath, stop, get in my body, sit down, stand up, 
whatever it is, notice myself, ask a question, am I hungry? Remind myself to slow down with food. What happens is, let me, let me say this, the act of eating fast by itself is a stressor. So the human body is not designed to eat fast. So right now, if you're the most relaxed person in the world, and we just come, we hook you up for a galvanic skin response, blood pressure, heart rate, look at your cortisol level, and I say, okay, eat this meal really fast. Just eat it fast. Your body's gonna go into a stress response. It's not designed to do that. So humans have been eating fast for a heck of a long time. We're conditioned that way. That's why we call it fast food. It's not because they make it fast. Yeah, we eat it fast. <laughs> and that, yeah, yeah. Before you go on, I'm just gonna think about hunter-gatherers for a minute. I don't think every meal was like with the candle and the placemats, right? It was sort of like, you know, I know that we scavenge a lot of times our, our meat that was from other animals and there's maybe other animals watching and you're always looking out to get, I would imagine that, that we did eat in a stressful way. I totally get the comp. I love what you said about how when you eat food, that that actually is a stress reducing response because the only way you can digest it is to turn on parasympathetic activity, which makes you calm. I love that. And I imagine that if you, put a ton of stress on there, that eventually that stress would overwhelm the ability to go parasympathetic and get calm from the meal, and that causes digestive problems. I would imagine that's a, a good way to look at it. But I always wrestled with the idea, I get it. Ayurveda is like sit down, relax, be sattvic, take time, eat. But did our ancestors take time and eat, or was they, were they always looking over their shoulder looking for the lion to come eat their food? Well, it Let's use that example. Look at, look at animals in nature to this day. Okay, yeah. and in fact, let's look at lions, because I've studied lions a lot. I've been to Africa. Now, what's gonna happen is a lion makes a kill. In an ideal universe for that lion, what it wants to do, it wants to drag that meal somewhere where nobody else is gonna bug it. Now, there might be several other lions in the pride. They have their little hierarchy of who gets how much. But the idea is, Animals will do their best to create the conditions so they can eat in a relaxed way. Does it always happen? No, because here come the hyenas, and they want a piece of that meal too, and they're all looking around, and you got to look around at them. And at the same time, you have to eat your meal. So animals, carnivores, predators will do their best to hide their prey, to pull their prey somewhere where they can eat it in peace a human is gonna do the same thing. So, so as hunter-gatherers, were we always eating in a relaxed way? No, because we're out in nature and anything can happen. But we're always looking to eat right. in a relaxed way because that's the whole point. Right. <laughs> You're hunting in a stress response. Yeah, um, you feel better, right? Yeah, so, so we're always trying to design our environment so that it best supports what we want, how do I create safety, particularly around food? So here we are, you know, as, as modern humans, still trying to do the same thing that our hunter-gatherer ancestors were trying to do back then. I wrote an article recently that you're called The Lion Diet, and it was sort of funny because I went to this uh, out in Brighton, Colorado, there's that, that preserve of lions that are out there, and, and uh, my son was really into cats, big cats. We went out there a few years back, many years ago, when he was really into that, 
And they told us that these lions eat like three times a week. And then they, and after they eat, they have this, they just chill. I mean, they're always just chilling, you know? So there's this big time two days siesta, you might call it, that they take after the food, which I want to ask you about that. Like, what about taking rest after the meal? But also I was, I wrote this article, sort of a fun article, because it was like, I was like, God, I would love to do that. Eat and pig out, you know, once, like as much as you possibly, then not possibly could, and then not eat anything for a couple of days. And then just pig out again. And of course, you know, I did, I started my whole health career doing fasting many, many years ago. So I was always into fasting and intermittent fasting. And this was like the ultimate intermittent fasting way. And I'm sort of funny that I think nowadays, if I wrote a book called The Lion Diet, it'd be like, you know, like a big thing. Everybody's into intermittent fasting. Now I think clearly eating one meal every three days is a little bit extreme, very extreme. Um, but but uh, so I'm curious about two things. My two questions are, number one, what about the lion big time siesta that they take and how valuable is that for us to relax after the meal? But also, um, you know, what about the idea of intermittent fasting? Is that something you guys have on your radar at the Psychology for Eating? Got it. Great questions. So, you know, relaxing after a meal is probably as important as relaxing with the meal because it yeah. takes time for the body to digest. The body wants time. Vitamin T is so important. If you and I start to look around the globe and look at some of the cultures that we're already starting to emulate or that have been doing it for a long time, you watch the Europeans, you watch so many Latin American cultures, they have their biggest meal of the day at midday at lunch when the sun is highest in the sky, when your metabolism is actually strongest, your body temperature is greatest. So they're having their biggest meal then, and then business shuts down. <laughs> you know, I, I was in Europe, first time I was in Italy, I couldn't believe it for like two and a half hours, I wanna go shopping, everything's closed. Like, what are you people doing? And what they're doing is they're resting, they're relaxing, they're digesting after not a 10 minute meal, not a 15 minute meal, for a lot of them, it's an hour. It's an hour and a half meal. I got to tell you something, story. And this was, this was told to me by an American archaeologist. She was hired to supervise an archaeologic dig in France. And what would happen is, so she's supervising all these workers. And what would happen is at lunchtime, the workers would disappear. they disappear for two hours. They would drive into town and they would have a two hour lunch and then they'd come back. And this was blowing her mind. She couldn't believe it. Like these are the laziest guys in her mind. So she said to them, listen, um, you got to eat lunch on the job. You have to bring lunch. I'm sorry, this is not going to work. So the men talked amongst themselves and they agreed. So the next day they pull up with an extra truck. And she's just like wondering what's in the truck. Okay, lunchtime happens. They pull out tables. They pull out tablecloths. <laughs> they pull out the silverware. They make a meal. <laughs> and it takes two hours <laughs> outside. You know, that was their culture because it's, it's built in that we're going to relax. So the whole point is parasympathetic nervous system dominance, relaxation response. We are digesting our meal, especially when it comes to the biggest meal in our belly. So here's the lion. Now, now, you and I are a little different. A lion can afford to lie around for three days. 
your family's not going to let you do that. <laughs> your family wants you on, you know, you got to be on. And if you want to be on as a human being, you cannot have a large amount of food in your belly because you and I know that once you hit a certain point of eating food, you ate too much food, what happens is your gut's going to need extra blood flow. There's a lot of metabolic energy that has to go to your midsection. So we're going to pull that from extremities. We're going to pull a little bit from the head. The bottom line is all our metabolic resources are going into the gut. And then people say, oh, I'm like a couch potato. I ate so much. So, you know, part of keeping sharp, part of keeping my cognition sharp during the day is to not overeat. In fact, maybe even undereat just a little, to be a little hungry. Because when we're a little hungry, we're ready for the next thing. So lying can afford to have a kill and lie around for a couple of days. You and I, we can't have that same thing. Um, intermittent fasting is, to me, it's a beautiful concept and it's a beautiful strategy and it works. Uh, I, I mean, plain and simple, it just works. Right. Um, I have no preference about any system other than does it work? And does it work for you? Does it work for me? Does it work for whoever's doing it? Um, for some people, before they start intermittent fasting, they actually have to learn, you know, in, in a strange way how to eat and how to be in relationship with food. Because from an emotional standpoint, what I'm saying is there are so many people who are living in fear of food because we have a collective fear of fat. We have a collective fear of body fat. We have a collective fear of fat in food, particularly amongst the women in the Western world. So there's a big fear of fat. There's a lot of fat phobia. There's a lot of fat shaming. And, you know, kids are growing up. They get teased if they're fat. So what happens is, well, let's see if I'm fat. I'm no good. I'm not lovable. And what makes you fat? Food. So what happens is a lot of people, food is the enemy. That's the little mind trick that they're doing. Now, as soon as you say to yourself, as soon as I say to myself, I don't know, he's the enemy, then I'm going to be in a stress response when I'm near him. If I say the sun is my enemy, I'm going to be in a stress response when the sun comes out. If I say food is my enemy, every time I think about food, look at food or eat food, I'm in a mild stress response. When the brain senses enemy, we will go into stress. So there's a lot of people who need to let go of food being the enemy, believe it or not, and embrace being an eater because there's a naturalness to being an eater. There's a flow to being an eater. Um, and and that's, that's just some of what we do, you know, when we train professionals, when we do our programs, is a lot of people, not all, but I'm saying a lot of people are living in a fear of food. Don't fear food, fear predators who want to eat you. Don't fear the thing that you're eating. Right. <laughs> it's hard, but that's our conditioning. That's how the world conditions us, the media conditions us, society conditions us. Other people are conditioning us to fear the food itself. So before I put someone on a fast or an intermittent fast or a cleanse, I want to make sure, hmm, are you able to relax with food before I start manipulating the food and telling you when not to eat, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, perfectly. Because I would imagine if you're constantly, if you have that fear of food all the time, that activates the stress response, the, the sympathetic turn off digestion. So then when there's a bear chasing you down the mountain, you're not thinking about food. So you're not hungry. So then a lot of folks, when they have a major fear response to food, will start to lose their appetite and not and then, of course, not eating forces them to burn fat, so they start losing weight. And then when they, and this can create an eating disorder, right? Now all of a sudden you've got a situation where the stress is saying, don't eat, you're not hungry, the body's burning fat, you're losing significant weight. And then when you do eat, the body says, hey, this is the first meal I've had in like weeks or days, so let's take all that and store it as fat in case she tries to starve us again. So now you create a situation where you created an eating disorder, and when they say, if I eat, I gain so much weight, it just makes me fat, I don't want to get fat. So they actually are right about that because the starvation yes. from the stress caused them to take whatever they did eat, stick it under the mattress and their hips or their belly, and cause fat as a reserve fuel in case you try to starve them again. Does that make sense? Absolutely, 100%. And okay. we've, you know, once again, we have been taught, the average, average person has been taught that food equals calories equals weight on my body. So if somebody has extra weight for whatever reason, the first strategy they will go to is limit their calories. Now for some people, there's a small percentage of people that actually limiting their calories works because they've been overeating, but really it's not limiting calories. It's learning to be in a relaxation response. It's learning to eat in a regulated way so your body feels full when it's full and feels hungry when it's hungry. But to your point, what happens is if I start to undereat, if I start to underfeed, brain takes notice and it thinks it's on a desert island. It thinks that there's no food available. And because our body is so smart, the central nervous system is so smart, it says, okay, you're on a desert island. There's no food. Great. Let's slow down calorie burning capacity. Let's mm -hmm. store fat really vigorously because guess what? We want to survive. So then, yes, when that person eats again, they're going to, oftentimes the body just is going to store it even more because the body's smart. It's like, okay, we're still in starvation conditions. So for a lot of people, it's the stress in their inner universe that keeps them on that metaphoric desert island. It's the stress of food is the enemy. I'm too fat. I'm no good. I hate my body. And, and a lot of people think that I will love my body when it looks like this. When I have the perfect body, the perfect weight, the perfect this, the perfect, then I'm gonna love myself. But of course, until then, what? You don't love yourself. And if you don't love yourself now, first of all, that's very conditional love. I mean, would you say that to your little infant? You know, too much baby fat, I don't love you. You know, I want a more muscular baby. Um, we won't do that to a baby if your best friend said that to you. You know, I don't love you because you have too much body fat. When we create the false belief that I will love myself when this condition is met, I generally find it doesn't happen, even for people that lose the weight. And most everybody I've ever asked this question to, do you know someone who has the body that you want, the ideal body, the ideal weight, the ideal beauty or looks, and they're still unhappy, they're still miserable, they're still stressed. Everybody knows that person. So all I'm saying is the, the, the outer thing guarantees us nothing. And for most people, for most dieters, 
who are trying desperately to change their body so they will love themselves, usually the journey informs the destination. So if the journey is filled with self-attack, I'm no good, stress, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate myself, I, how could we possibly end up in self-love if the entire journey has been <laughs> infused with self-attack? So really what we're trying to do and help people with is, great, you wanna shapeshift your body, I'm with you. I'm all for it if that's what you really wanna do, but we have to learn how to love it right now into that journey. You know, really, you know, so much of what you do is, in a way, it's helping people self-nourish. It's helping people self-love. You know, treating your body well, it's a form of love. It's a form of nourishment. And yeah, we can, we, it's, yes, it's a cognitive choice, but at the same time, so many people in a strange way have disembodied. They've stepped out of their body because they don't like it. Um, and they think they're going to get back in once it looks a certain way. So we have to learn how to love it in the small ways, which is what we're talking about, breathing, which is what we're talking <clears throat> about, ritual. So I wonder, you know, so many people, I think this, you know, are, are you know, guilty as charged, emotionally eating, we snack, we eat, you know, our cheat foods here and there. Um, we have our go-to foods when we're stressed out. Um, and then of course that, you know, can, can develop into, you know, binge eating and overeating and overweight and eating disorders and things like that. So is there like a, a plan that you give, like a step-by-step -step plan that people can take away from this and say, okay, here are the steps that I need to do to kind of unravel the, uh, the, the, the damages of emotional eating in my life? Hmm. You know, part of it really, the first thing, and no, there's no system in a way because every person is different in terms of where they're starting from. Every person is overeating for a different reason. Somebody might be overeating simply because they're nutritionally deprived. They have a poor quality diet or they don't have the right macronutrient balance and their body's calling for food. And they don't know really that they're nutritionally imbalanced or nutritionally deprived. But, but here's, in terms of what you're asking, I think the first step for people is we have to realize that our relationship with food is a great teacher. It's teaching us. What happens is we get into a very good, bad, sin, punishment relationship with food. Rather, let's look at food as a great teacher. My relationship with food is a great teacher. And indeed, I have a relationship with food. And what's my relationship with food filled with? There's love in it. There's pleasure. There's confusion. There's uncertainty. My relationship with food has changed. My diet has changed over the years. Yeah, sometimes I overeat. Sometimes I binge eat. That's like any other relationship that you have with a human being. There's love. There's confusion. There's conflict. There's anxiety, there's hopefully transformation, there's connection, there's intimacy. So we're in a relationship with food. If I look at it that way, I can begin to forgive myself a little bit. I can begin to let go of the shame. I can begin to remember I'm a human being. And yeah, things get messy. You know, whenever somebody labels themselves to me, they say, oh, I'm an emotional eater. I go, me too. I eat with emotion. 
I'm an emotional being. You know, look at me at a holiday dinner. I'm an emotional eater. Look at me when you put my favorite plate of food in front of me. I got emotion in me. Sometimes I'm happy when I eat. Sometimes I'm bored when I eat. Sometimes I'm a little stressed when I eat. So you and I are emotional beings. So what is the opposite of an emotional eater? An unemotional eater? Now, now granted, yes, 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 yes. There are some of us who the way we regulate our emotions is we go to food. So if I'm looking at my relationship with food as a great teacher, and I'm one of those people who, when I'm stressed, I'm bored, I'm upset, I'm having a conflict in my relationship, but instead of speaking to my partner, I'm just kind of holding it in, and I got all this stress, and then I end up overeating. So many people are overeating for no other reason than they're not communicating in their relationship. They're holding anger that's unexpressed from a job. They're, whatever it is, there's communication that's not being delivered. Our voice is being withheld. And that throat chakra energy wants a little bit of relief. When I'm withheld and all of a sudden I binge on food, there's actually a relaxation response once you get all that food in the body. So back to my relationship with food is here to teach me, then ask yourself the question, how is your relationship with food for you a great teacher? What lessons are you learning? And like any student, you know, we have to learn our lessons before we can graduate. It's not about beating up myself because that's where most people go. They go into, let me beat myself up. I overeat, I binge ate. No, you overeat, let's break it down. Let's try to see why. Because, John, here's a great way to look at it. Any human being that overeats or binge eats has a brilliant reason that's rooted somewhere in biology or psychology or both. It is not some evil behavior. So if I binge eat, you know, I watch people binge eat and I start to do a detailed dietary assessment and they're no fat or they're low fat diet. If you are on a no fat diet, essentially you are denying your body essential fatty acids and your body's brilliant. It's going to go, this isn't good. You know, my goodness, a significant portion of your brain is made of fat. Um, if you sucked all the fat out of your body, you'd be dead in a moment. So the whole point is a lot of people who binge, it's literally a nutritional deficiency, oftentimes fat, because there's a lot of people who are fat phobic. That's why they're binging. Other people are binging because they have a trauma that is undigested. It could be a trauma from childhood. It could be a sexual trauma, a physical trauma, an emotional trauma. It could be the trauma of your brother or sister died. Whatever it is that hasn't been processed and that will come out as the behavior called binge eating because binge eating then becomes for that person like a placeholder. Why am I binge eating? Why am I binge eating? And until you talk to someone and begin to break it down, oh, oh my goodness. People with trauma gain weight. People with trauma do binge eat. We know that. Okay, all kinds of studies on, you know, people who have post-traumatic stress syndrome will gain weight, they'll have digestive issues, they'll binge eat. Okay, so those are symptoms that are brilliant because they're letting us know something. If I have a pain in my head, there's nothing wrong with that pain. The pain is trying to tell me something. So I want to listen to that symptom. Every unwanted eating symptom has a brilliance in it. Again, it's rooted in 
biology or nutrition or psychology somewhere. So what you're, you're making the point very clear that a lot of emotions and psychology and even biology and different imbalances are causing people to be emotional eaters. But I'm wondering, and I imagine this is what the psychology of eating is all about, um, how effective is it when you change their relationship with food through the things you're talking about, how does that impact their psychology, their long-term trauma, their emotional stress, the thing that got them to eat like, you know, eat emotionally in the first place? Is that something that you guys do? Is that sort of the, sort of what I'm wondering, is that sort of the whole plan of by actually creating an environment around eating, you can actually kind of, you know, kind of unravel a lot of your psychological issues and then therefore get on the road to recovery? You know, it's, everything depends, great question, on really the complaint that a person has. So, yes, there are some people, some people who they can start to unravel much of their past relative to what I do right now. So, you know, if I want to unravel my past, I have maybe three options. I go back into my past. I do a little bit of excavation. You know, there's all different kinds of therapies and psychotherapies and tools to go into the past. Another thing is, what do I need to do in the present to move forward? For some people, that's the ticket for them. So even though I'm overeating and I'm binge eating and it's related to something in the past, if I can train myself to begin to relax around food, some of the trauma that's held in the system begins to unwind in the present. Does that necessarily hit the sweet spot? Not, not necessarily. Again, depends on the person. But we can do so much in the now. Okay, We can do so much in the now as I learn how to relax with food. Here's what I want to suggest to you, or here's what I want to mention. One of the, one of the key strategies that we train our practitioners to do with their clients is to simply ask a question. Are you a fast eater, a moderate eater, or a slow eater? In general, if you ask that, ask that question of 100 people, 85 will tell you they're fast eaters. Okay, so before I can help any human being who overeats, binge eats, emotionally eats, or has any kind of digestive issue, if I cannot help them become a slow eater, I cannot help them truly get where they wanna go. If I have somebody with a weight issue and they wanna lose weight and they're a fast eater, what I'm saying to you is that person cannot sustainably long-term lose weight until they learn how to become a slow, relaxed eater. And when you hear slow, people hear slow, they think boring, you know? Excuse, to me, slow is sexy. You know, if you really love something, if you love sex, you don't tell your partner, let's have sex and get it over with really fast, honey. It's if you, if you love something, you, you love your kids, you take time with them. You love something, you take time with it. So slow really means sensation. Slow means taste, it means pleasure, it means aroma, it means satisfaction, it means the people I'm eating with. It means, ah, eating food that makes me feel good. So my point is, it is extremely difficult for people who are fast eaters to become slow eaters. And they try, it for, they try it for a week and they say, no, I don't want to do it. I tried it once. I, 
I don't know. That's like your kid going to school and learn how to read. And they say, dad, I tried reading today. I tried learning the alphabet. Couldn't do it. And no, it's a practice. It's a practice. It's fundamental. Are we talking like chew your food 30 times, put the no. fork down in between? What are we talking? Give me a little more detail on slow eating. What does that look like? Okay. So slow eating to me, really, once again, it's individual. I'm going to look at how much, I'm going to ask my client, how much time do you take for breakfast? How much time do you take for lunch? How much time do you take for dinner? What I'm going to do is, you know, ideally, I want somebody doing a breakfast meal 15 to 20 minutes, let's say. Ideally, roughly, I want somebody doing a lunch meal 30 minutes. Ideally, I want somebody doing their dinner meal maybe 45 minutes. And for some people, it's going to be a little bit longer. For some people, given their lifestyle, okay, I'll, I'll shorten it a little bit because most people say like they eat breakfast in like a couple of minutes and they might eat lunch in five minutes and they might eat dinner in five minutes. And then they're complaining that they overeat and that they binge eat. So here's the thing, cephalic phase digestive response. So that's a scientific term for the head phase of digestion. Basic textbook physiology, cephalic phase digestive response taste, pleasure, aroma, satisfaction, and one's visuals of the meal. So what happens is when you, when you, when you look at the sum total of all the research on cephalic phase digestive response, what scientists will say is that about 40 to 60% of your digestive power at any meal comes from the head phase of digestion. Seeing the food, tasting it, looking at it. So you look at a food that's your favorite food, your stomach starts to churn or you look at your favorite food, your mouth starts to salivate. That's cephalic phase digestive response. When we don't get taste, pleasure, aroma, satisfaction, visuals, the brain goes, I don't remember tasting food. I don't remember eating food. The brain is hungering for experience. The body is hungering for experience. So then the brain, your belly might be full, but the brain is going hungry. And that's why people will tell you, yeah, my belly feels full, but my mouth feels hungry. Yeah, your mouth does feel hungry because you ate too fast. So as human beings, we're not that animal. We're not that creature. They eat fast. Okay, we're a little different. And we must slow down in that process. And in that slowing down, you and I step into, once again, relaxation response, parasympathetic nervous system dominance. That's, that's not just about digestion and assimilation. Higher cognitive function, the executive function of the brain, the prefrontal cortex is most active when you and I are relaxed. So you are thinking great thoughts and writing great books when you're relaxed, not when you're running from the lion. So right. and I imagine that, that part of that, when you slow down, it takes a while for the food to be digested, get into your blood and hit your brain and, 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 and kind of shut down the satiety center so they go, oh, or activate the satiety center so you can say, oh, I'm actually not hungry. When you eat it really fast, the tendency to overeat is just because you, you've eaten way too much food and your brain never got the message that you're full. And so you've probably eaten at least 20% more than you need if you would have eaten it slowly you would have given the brain time to say, okay, you're good, stop eating. Bingo, bingo. But then notice what happens, John. People eat their meal in five minutes. The brain needs approximately, approximately 20 minutes to realize it's full. We yeah. can't nail it down because every human is different. But we came up with that number, what, like 35 years ago. 
approximately 20 minutes to realize it's full. So then you eat a big meal, you're still hungry, you overeat, and then people go, oh, I don't have willpower. Oh, I'm a loser. Oh, I'm a willpower weakling. What's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with you. You just didn't take enough time. It has nothing to do with willpower whatsoever. Everybody thinks they have to have willpower when it comes to food. Willpower does not, hardly comes into the equation. Your body knows what it's doing. We just need to create the conditions so the body does what it does best. When it comes to food, the body wants time and it wants feedback. Eat some food. Is it poisonous? Is it good for me? Your taste will tell you that. But if you're not present, if I'm not present when I eat, I could eat trash and not even realize it. I could be eating the worst junk food for my body and my taste, taste is an intelligence. You know, how many people have said, you know, I used to eat the worst food, I switched to a good diet, and then I eat the food I used to eat, I can't do it, it tastes terrible. Because your taste intelligence got smarter, literally. And a lot of people's taste buds get dumbed down. But once again, we can't have intelligence unless there's prefrontal cortex activity happening. And that happens when you and I, once again, we slow down, we relax, we take in information. You know, it's, it's beautiful. And everything you're saying is so, rings so true with the ancient wisdom of Ayurveda, which is all about, you know, how we eat our food. In Ayurveda, they called it a sattvic environment. When you eat your food, your, the emotion you have is being impregnated into that food, into those microbes. They actually discovered microbes thousands of years ago. They called them krimi. And when you eat them, they emotionally charge the, the, the food bolus that actually is taken through your whole indigestive tract. And if you eat in a sattvic way, you actually initiate a process of digestion that Ayurveda says takes 30 days to complete. And in that 30-day process, we create these rarefied substances Ayurveda calls ojas. And that, what it's designed to do is create a heightened state of awareness. So you can see clearly what our crazy mind has conjured up as protective patterns of behavior we created as young children navigate our crazy childhood. And if those patterns of behaviors are still serving us as adults. So the idea of eating from the Vedic perspective, from the real, everything that you're saying was to create a platform of self-awareness. So then you could see more clearly the truth of the non-truth. What, you know, you know, how, and then therefore, final step is then with your awareness, take action to free yourself from patterns of behavior that are not serving you. And like you said, so many of those emotions are right there at the dinner table because we bring our emotions to the plate because that's how our brain figured out how to resolve them. I just want to, I want to thank you so much for everything you talked about. I'd like to, you know, give you the last word, you know, your last thoughts about, about all this kind of wrapping it up for us. And uh, again, I just think that, that uh, what you're saying is just so time tested and so wise. And I want to thank you so much for being here. Last words. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. You know, for, for those of you listening in, it's always about forgiveness. You know, it's always about pressing the reset button and the restart button and understanding that we're human beings on a journey and we're here to grow. And oftentimes our relationship with food, our relationship with the body, with my health is, is literally helping me learn how to grow, helping me learn how to become a better human being. Yeah, it's about being healthy, for sure. I want to be healthy, but what good is being healthy if we don't have wisdom, if there's no love, if there's no 
connection. Uh, if we're not taking that good health and putting it to good use in the world in our relationships with our family. So to me, it's, it's giving nutrition, you know, as you were saying, it's really giving it a higher purpose. So John, thanks so much. You know, thank you so much, David, for being here. You guys can find more information about David at the psychologyofeating.com, psychologyofeating.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to us at YouTube or your podcast app. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. John Viard at lifespa.com.